So Mark 6, 1 through 6, um, is where we'll be this morning. And as you can't tell by the weather today, but as summer approaches, um, so too do the numbers of people who are flocking to national parks. Now, uh, we as a family love national parks. I was just telling Daniel recently, they're not here, but I was just telling him recently how I was watching the Ken Burns National Parks documentary. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's riveting <laughs> for me. But why, it, makes the, it makes us ask the question, why do people go to national parks? Why do we love them so much? Well, it's because at national parks, there are some of the most beautiful landscapes, the greatest vistas that you can behold. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, but if you ever, ever go there, you, you pull up in the parking lot, you head over to the canyon, and what do you see? You see a bunch of backs of people, right? You walk up and all you see is a bunch of, of backs just looking out over, to this, over this giant hole in the ground. They're gazing and marveling at the beauty of this place, and that is a good and right response. Now, landscapes aren't the only thing you can see. You can also go to national parks and see some amazing wildlife. I, uh, a few years ago, had the privilege of going with some of my best friends to Yellowstone National Park. And we wanted to see some wildlife, so we inquired from the ranger station, and they said, if you go to this valley in the evening, you're sure to see some wildlife. It, it, it's where you always see wildlife. So we go there in the evening, and what do we see? Dozens and dozens of cars parked on the side of the road and hundreds of people sitting out in, field, in the field on blankets, in, in, in camping chairs, with binoculars and scopes. And what are they doing? They're just looking. They're just looking and gazing and marveling at the beauty of these wild animals in the wildlife. Now, about this time every year, too, you also inevitably see some people who do not act appropriately, appropriately at national parks. My newsfeed inevitably gets flooded with people doing outlandish, outlandish and crazy things at national parks. I just recently saw a woman, maybe you've seen this, at Yellowstone... She went up to a fully grown bull bison inches away from it. And what did she start doing? Pull out the cell phone, take some selfies. What's the problem with this picture? Well, there's, there's a lot. We could say this is really bad judgment. She could have been gored or tossed in the air and killed. No, but the... The, the thing that sticks out, the glaring issue with this picture is that she completely missed it. She completely missed the beauty that was right in front of her. And instead of marveling, she inserts herself into the frame and says, no, let's look at myself. Well, we've been in a three-part sermon series called Jesus Greater and Stronger. In fact, we've just finished up our third part, but today we'll reflect on uh, this series one final time because what we have here in Mark 6, 1 through 6, is an epilogue of sorts to this three-part series. What we've learned in these narratives is, just like with 
at national parks, but to an even greater level, the appropriate response when one encounters Jesus, the Son of God, is to stand in fearful awe of him, to marvel at who he is. Now, throughout Mark, Jesus leaves those in his wake amazed at him. We've just seen Jesus calm the great storm, and it moves the disciples to fear and wonder at who he is. And then we saw next, Jesus cast out an army of demons, subdue the unsubduable man, and everyone who hears this man's testimony are what? Marveling at what Jesus has done. And then lastly, we just saw Jesus not only heal a woman of an incurable disease for 12 years, but raise a little girl from death to life, raised her from the dead. And what was the outcome? The people who witnessed it were overcome with amazement. In fact, this is where everything is headed, marveling at Jesus at his return. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be what? Marveled at among all who have believed. But you will not marvel at Jesus then when he returns if you don't marvel at him now. And it can't stop there. Jesus must not simply be marveled at. Jesus must be believed. He must be received and he must be treasured. Mark makes this case over and over because what we've, what we've seen in, in Mark is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he will surprisingly serve and suffer in order to save his people. And the call in light of this is to follow him. Now, those who follow Jesus are those who are with him. They are insiders of the kingdom of God. If you're with Jesus, you get the kingdom and you get God. Those who reject Jesus do not have the kingdom of God, and they are outsiders. Our passage today will continue this reality. But the question that I want to ask as we go to our text today is this. If the appropriate response to Jesus is to marvel at him, to believe in him and and treasure him, if that is what his people do, what is it that makes Jesus himself marvel? What does Jesus stop and stare at in amazement? As we will see, oftentimes it's you and me, and this is not necessarily a good thing. Look with me at Mark 6, 1 through 6. We will begin in... uh, looking at this in two different parts. First, we will see verses 1 through 3, part 1, the unbelievable situation. And then in verses 4 through 6, we will see Jesus's revealing response to unbelief. So verses 1 through 3, the unbelievable situation, and then verses 4 through 6, Jesus's revealing response to unbelief. Look with me first at verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So here Jesus goes away from there. Where is there? Well, in a geographic sense, he's leaving Capernaum. He's, he's going from Capernaum to his hometown, Nazareth, leaving the Sea of Galilee. But there's a lot more to this there than just that. As we mentioned, we've just seen, as we look in the rearview mirror of what Jesus has just done, he's just calmed the storm. 
with the words of his mouth. He's just cast out an army of demons, and he's just raised a little girl from the dead. That is what this there is that he's going away from. All of that is in the background. And he went away from there. Where does he go? Well, he goes to Nazareth. He goes to his hometown, his fatherland, and his disciples are with him. He hasn't been back here since the beginning of his ministry, but we know his fame has spread to here because, remember, just a few chapters earlier, we saw his mother and his brothers come to get him, right? Because they had heard of, him, of what he is doing, heard of his ministry, heard he's not eating, and they think he's out of his mind, so they come to get him. So his fame has spread to Nazareth. I don't know if you've ever uh, been to a class reunion of sorts. This is like a homecoming, right? Uh, I've gone to my tenure. It was great. I enjoyed it. But I've also heard stories that when you go back to your class reunion after years, sometimes they can be a little awkward, right? Because, because people change so much over the years. Well, if this reunion of sorts, Jesus going back to his hometown, starts off well enough it very quickly becomes not only awkward, but, but downright ugly, very quickly. And it all stems from what Jesus does. What does he do? He teaches. In the first part of verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. On the Sabbath, as Jesus usually does, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. What does his his teaching imply? Well, we've seen this over and over again. We've made the case Mark characterizes Jesus' teaching from the very beginning as this, Mark 1, 14 through 15. He went proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is what marks Jesus' teaching. The kingdom is here, it is coming, repent. They go hand in hand. The kingdom's here, repent. Well, let's consider also another parallel account to this. We don't usually go in depth at these other parallel accounts, but I think it might be helpful for us to compare this, our passage today with, with Luke's account. We heard it read this morning. Uh, and, and I think it'll, it'll be quite revealing to what exactly Mark is doing here. So we'll go f- back and forth between the two for a bit. In Luke four seventeen through 19, we see a more elaborate, more detailed picture of Jesus' teaching. There, Luke tells us that Jesus reads from, well, where else? Isaiah. Luke four seventeen through 19, we heard it read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then is declaring to the people of Nazareth that the, the, the promised prophecy of God's coming kingdom is here. This is, this is good news. This is the long-awaited news that the, that the people of God, Israel, have been waiting for. And Jesus says this much as himself. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is, is delivering the message of this kingdom. And they initially receive it well, gladly even. Uh, we, we read in Mark 2 that the many who heard it were astonished. They're amazed. 
And Luke tells us that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They like it. But where does this end up? Skip ahead and look at verse 3. They took offense at him. How did we get here? How did we get in, in less than two verses in Mark, go from being amazed and astonished at Jesus to taking offense at him? What's going on? Well, Luke, again, offers some detail. It makes clear that, uh, Luke makes clear that Jesus' message had some parts of it that, that weren't well received. The blessing of, of the promised kingdom was going to go not primarily first to the Jews, but to the nations, to Gentiles. And remember, we just saw what, this, what happened. This filled them with wrath, and they even tried to kill him, throw him over the cliff before Jesus got away. So we might say, this seems like a helpful bit of information. We don't see that in Mark. Why would Mark leave that out? I think Mark leaves it out to highlight the heart of this issue. Mark leaves it out to highlight the heart of the people of Nazareth's rejection of Jesus. Luke himself points to it a little bit. Right after Luke observes the people marveled at Jesus' gracious words, what do they do next? They say, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus responds by saying, no doubt you will tell me to do the things I was doing in Capernaum. Prophet, heal yourself. He, he notes that they'll want a sign to prove, to prove his words, to prove who he is. So you see, before the people ever had issue with anything Jesus said, they started to take issue with Jesus himself. This is what Mark is highlighting. The people of Nazareth are amazed and astonished at his teaching, even eager to accept it. But then they immediately begin asking some very revealing questions, not about what Jesus has said, but about Jesus. Let's look at these questions. The, the picture here is going to be this. What an amazing message. But Jesus can't be the one who ushers in God's kingdom. Not Jesus. Look at Second half of verse 2, and many who, were, who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Three questions pop up here. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? What do these questions tell us? Well, they recognize, first... Jesus' unique authority and his teaching and mighty works. These aren't normal. Where did they come from? They recognize Jesus' teaching as wisdom. They call it wisdom. It's valuable. They recognize Jesus' mighty works to back up his authority. They've at least heard of these. But what else do these questions tell us? Well, notice some specific words here. They ask where. Where did he get these things? They ask what. What is the wisdom given to him? They ask how. How are such mighty works done by his hands? These are real questions. We could, we could fill in the answer. Where did he get them from God? What, what is this wisdom? It's of God. 
How does he do these mighty works? By God. So these questions betray the fact that they will not make the step to believe that Jesus' authority and his wisdom and his teaching is from God. They will not attribute his wisdom, his teaching, the proclamation of the kingdom, the call to repent to God. No matter how wise or how powerful. Why? Well, they ask a fourth revealing question. Look in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Judas and uh, and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? This reveals the root of the people's problem. They cannot accept Jesus' wise teaching of the kingdom and his mighty works are from God because they cannot accept that Jesus could be from God. They can't, they can't see the Son of God, the Messiah who brings the kingdom, standing before them. Wise teaching, affirmed by mighty works of power, calming the storm, having casted out demons, having raised the dead. But they can't see past his humanity and their own prideful idea of who they think Jesus is. They've completely boxed him in. Now, the rest of of verse 3 makes this abundantly clear. Look at verse 3. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. He is the object of their offense. Now, this word, take offense, we've seen it before. It literally means, uh, or it can also mean to, to fall away, to be caused to sin, to stumble at. We've seen this in, in the parable of the, of the soils. The rocky soil is described in this way. Remember the, the rocky soil, it receives the word initially with joy, but then immediately falls away when trial or tribulation comes on account of the word. Here, the people of Nazareth fall away in a matter of minutes, perhaps seconds, because they cannot accept the one who proclaims this message. And if you cannot accept the one who proclaims the message of the kingdom, you cannot have the kingdom. So, This is the unbelievable situation set before us. Jesus brings the gospel of God, the proclamation of the kingdom to his hometown. And here Mark shows us that they don't primarily reject that gracious, glorious message. They reject the one who brings it. Now, Jesus Jesus will, will make this even more clear as he responds to this, and it is a devastating and revealing response. Look with me at part two, verses four through six. Jesus's revealing response to unbelief. Now, here in these last three verses, we'll see in first in verse four, the prophet's proverb. Second in verse five, we will see no mighty works. And then finally in verse six, we will see Jesus marvel and Jesus leave. First, verse four, this prophet's proverb. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus's proverb here reveals even more clearly why they 
reject Jesus? What is the common thread between people in, the home, in his hometown, relatives, and household? It's familiarity. Familiarity. How does familiarity contribute to their rejection? Well, consider, consider this reality in relationship to an essential piece of this message of the coming kingdom. Repent. Built into this call or this announcement of the kingdom is the call to repent. Here Jesus reveals the problem. It's pride. It's it's self-importance, self-absorption. So where do we see that? The subtext here is basically this. These people think that they know Jesus. They think that they know everything about him. They believe they have come to the end of him. He's a carpenter. He's Joseph's son. He's, he's James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon's brothers. We know his sisters. That's who he is. He is just one of us. Nothing more. There is no way, no matter how good the news, no matter how powerful the signs, that Jesus can be the one who announces the kingdom and that Jesus could be the one who calls me to repent. But little do they know that they have not even begun to scratch the surface of the infinite depth of this man. They don't see the infinite worth right before their eyes because they can't see past themselves and their own prideful notions of who Jesus is. Their categories aren't big enough. And Jesus is here to blow up those categories. Their unbelief prevents them from beholding his beauty, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They're like the woman at the national park who couldn't even see the beauty right before her eyes, but instead had to insert herself into the frame. And they can't see that the one who gives them their very breath that they're using to shout him down is standing right before them. Jesus' own words should be a hint to them of what they're actually doing. Jesus says that they dishonor me. A prophet is not without honor. He says he's being dishonored. This is a rarely used word in the Greek Old Testament, which makes where it does occur all the more noteworthy. It's a familiar passage. We see it translated differently. Isaiah 53.3, describing the coming of the Messiah, who is also the suffering servant. He was despised. Translated differently than dishonor, but the same word. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, dishonored, and we esteemed him not. The people of Nazareth are literally fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah by dishonoring and rejecting Jesus. And this dishonor leads to their own loss. Look at verse 5. No mighty works. And he could, not, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So this, what a way to word this from Mark, right? This, this should immediately be kind of hard for us to swallow. He says, Jesus could do no mighty work? How is that possible? Jesus, the all-powerful Son of God, not being able to do something? Why would Mark word it this way? Well, let's take it in context. He says he could not do, uh, he could do no mighty work there, except 
that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That sounds, that sounds pretty mighty to me, right? I don't know how often we can say we've done that. We pray that God would do that through us, but sounds like a pretty mighty work to me. So what, what is Mark saying? Even Matthew will say this, and this kind of helps us. And Jesus did not do a mighty work there. So that's, that goes down a little bit easier, but why would Mark say that Jesus could not do? Well, I think it's for this reason. Think of what these mighty works do. We've already seen it in Mark. These mighty works serve the purpose of gospel proclamation. They serve the purpose of affirming Jesus' authority as the Son of God. They serve the purpose of, of the kingdom message being heralded. They're the secondary to the gospel proclamation's primary. Now, if they play a supporting role, these people of Nazareth, they have already rejected Jesus. It would make no difference for their unbelieving hearts if he did a mighty work. They reject him. Therefore, they will ultimately reject anything he might say or do. This is why Jesus is unable to do a mighty work there, because even if he did, it would not be mighty in their eyes. Because of their unbelief, they have already already set themselves up for failure. They miss out on the mighty works Jesus could have done among them. Jesus said to the woman who reached out and, and touched the hem of his robe, your faith has made you well. How many sick, how many dying, how many unclean could have been healed raised and delivered back into restoration and restored relationship with God if they would have just believed. But they don't only lose what Jesus could give. They lose Jesus himself. Look at the final part, Jesus' response in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So the unbelievable situation of the people of Nazareth's reception of Jesus leads to this very sobering response from Jesus. They were initially astonished at his wisdom and power, and it ends with Jesus marveling at what? Their unbelief. We asked at the beginning of the sermon, what is it that would make Jesus stand in amazement? To stand and stare and marvel? It's this unbelief. So throughout this three-part series, we've seen it's unbelievable to people that someone could say and do what Jesus says and does. And here we see that it's unbelievable to Jesus that people could see these things and hear his words and not believe. This is Romans 10, 15 through 21 hits on this. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Nazareth is just a microcosm of Israel here. The son of God holds out his hands to them and they reject him. They say, nope, not Jesus. 
I'm the main character in this story. I will decide when I repent. He will not tell me to do it. He will not be the one to usher in the kingdom. The result of Jesus' marveling and the result of, of their rejection is even more sobering. Jesus leaves. It says Jesus went out among the villages teaching. He went about among the villages teaching. This literally gives the idea of Jesus just goes to the surrounding villages. He leaves Nazareth not because he rejected them, but because they rejected him and they proved to be outsiders, at least for now. So, We might say, why did Jesus go here in the first place? What was all of this for? We saw in the the narrative with the demoniac, Jesus went across a sea to save one person and be rejected by everyone else. And we said that was worth it. That was part of his plan. But here, we see Jesus go to Nazareth and be rejected by everyone. What's the point of this? Why did Jesus go? Jesus goes back to Nazareth because he loves them. He comes to them and proclaims the kingdom and calls them to repent and believe because he wants them to be saved. I think Revelation 3.20 gives us a wonderful picture of what's happening here. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this was written to a church, obviously not the people of Nazareth, but the same call is being proclaimed to the people of Nazareth as it is in this Instance in Revelation 3.20. What's that call? Repent. Jesus comes and knocks on the door of Nazareth, saying, will you let me in? Will you be with me? Will you embrace me and be in the kingdom of God? And they will not do it. However, I don't think this is completely the end of the story for Nazareth. we, We can perhaps put our our feet in the sandals of of someone uh, who was from Nazareth, who would have been very close to Jesus in his uh, earthly life. And we can think of perhaps his, his own brother, James, his own earthly brother from Mary and Joseph, James. Now, we've already seen Jesus's brothers try to come get him because they thought he was out of his Mind, and we might ask, do they, do they believe in Jesus? Well, John 7, 4 makes very clear to us, John 7, 4 and 5 makes very clear to us that they do not. In fact, they try to urge Jesus to go public saying, if you're actually doing these things, go show yourself to the world. We see that in John 7, 4. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John 7, 5 tells us why they said this. They said this to Jesus, for not even his brothers believed in him. This had to be painful. 
We, we've said it before, we often think of, of Jesus, the Son of God, maybe in our minds as unaffected and emotionless, that he's just above it all. But Jesus, fully the Son of God, is also, also fully man. This had to be so painful. Rejection by the people who have known him best. The people he grew up with his whole life. Rejection by his own brothers, by James. Well, we know Jesus has been tempted and tested and tried in every respect of us without sin. So he sympathizes and grieves with our weaknesses. Jesus said it himself. He was dishonored. Isaiah says, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men, even his own earthly brothers. Just a, an aside here, you will be rejected. Just like Jesus. Some of you will be rejected by those closest to you, your own family. Some of you will be rejected by friends because of your faith in Christ. But know this, it will be painful. But your endurance and perseverance in the face of this rejection, your clinging to Christ because of his beauty, might be the very thing that causes them to see his beauty and worth. Perhaps this is even what happened with, with James. Jesus endured the rejection of all men because he endured for the joy that was set before him, the joy in his Father and in his saints who would be given to him. And ultimately, we know that James ended up believing. He becomes an apostle, an important leader in the church, as as. Uh, many biblical scholars in, in church history tell, strongly agree that Jesus, uh, James, Jesus' brother, emerged as the leader of the church in Jerusalem in Acts. He, he is the author of the epistle of James. What happened? What changed to make James, who did not believe, all of a sudden believe? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that the risen Lord appeared to who? James, and then the rest of the apostles. James finally understood that Jesus came to be rejected in order to save those he loved because he saw a picture of the risen Christ in all his beauty. And Jesus says to him, James, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I died and rose to save you. And all his categories are blown up. He is not just his brother. He is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. James literally saw Jesus in all his beauty. And he marveled and treasured. And Jesus goes to Nazareth to call for the repentance of Nazareth because he loves them. And we can't be too critical of Nazareth because 
We are all Nazareth. We are all James. And Jesus came to be rejected by his very own humanity. And he did it to save us. And now the risen Lord knocks on the doors of our hearts, proclaiming the kingdom and calling us to repent. Will we marvel and will we treasure him or will unbelief mark our lives? Now, this unbelief can manifest itself in two ways as we think about it. And we must be on guard against it in all manners. First, unbelief manifests itself in outright rejection of Jesus as the Son of God and the only way to God. A survey conducted in 2020 found that 52% of U.S. adults think that Jesus was simply a great teacher and nothing more, not the Son of God. That same survey found that a third of people who claim to be evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is not God, while 65% of evangelical Christians think that he is the first and greatest created being. You cannot be a Christian and deny the divinity of Jesus. He is fully God, the Son of God. To deny that is to deny the gospel. Begotten, not made. Of one substance with the Father. One essence. So the person who denies Christ outright is the one who has heard the gospel. He has heard the truth proclaimed. All humanity are rebels against God by nature and proved it by their sinful actions. Because God is perfect in holiness, righteous, and justice, man stands justly condemned before God to eternal destruction. But God, in his infinite love and mercy and grace, sent forth his son to live the perfect life we could not and to die the death that we deserve. And now whoever places their faith in Jesus and his work will be saved. person who outright rejects Jesus says this, hears that message and says, well, I like the forgiveness piece of that message, but I reject the idea that Jesus is the only way. I reject that it is only by his grace and not anything I can do. This is rejection of who Jesus is, and if you reject him, you do not have the kingdom, and you do not have God, and to passively ignore him is just to reject him. I urge you, If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you find yourself rejecting him as the only way, do the work of God and believe in the one whom God has sent. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your hearts that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do this. Believe in Jesus. Well, second, perhaps we say, oh, that's not me. I, I definitely don't reject Jesus. I believe who he is. I've called on him. Well, unbelief also manifests itself. Unbelief in Jesus also manifests itself in our lives through unrepentance. Accepting Jesus by our words, but denying him by our lives. Jesus would make very clear that that Christians in 
the passage we read in Revelation, this church in Laodicea run the, very ri- run the risk of being spit out of God's mouth because they will not repent. Because they do not think that they need to repent for anything. And you say, well, no worries here because I, when I look at my life, I see how awful I am or I, I don't think of myself as, as like I've, I've made it. But this is the deception of the heart. We can still see our lives and think of it as worthless, or we can see it and think of it as okay and have an unbelieving heart. How? Well, it's repentance. A sure fire mark of unbelief in a life is a lack of repentance. And it's not just being sorry for what we have done. It's turning away from sin and casting ourselves on the grace of Christ and then walking in newness of life. It's not just a change of mind. It's it's repent and do the works we did at first. All Christians will bear the fruit of repentance because it is a testament to our faith and belief in Jesus. It's not a work we do in order to earn grace. It is a work we do in response to the grace we have been given. If we do not find ourselves repenting, if we look at our lives and do not see repentance but see pattern of continued sin, And no repentance. This is unbelief in Jesus. We think of the call to Nazareth. The call was to repent. And by not repenting, they testified to their unbelief in him. We can do the same thing in our lives. So we all run the risk of unbelief. We are all at risk of looking right past the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And not marveling at him and treasuring him. Being like that woman and saying, no, I don't believe in him. I'm the main character here. No, I will not repent. I will decide when I get to do these things. Jesus doesn't tell me when. We put ourselves in the middle of this picture and we miss the beauty of Jesus. But God promises that it's not hopeless If we will look at Jesus, he will change us. If we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, God will change us from one degree of glory to another. Don't miss his beauty. Later on in Mark, we will read a passage where a man says, I believe, help my unbelief. This should be all of our prayers. The essence of the Christian faith is to believe in Jesus, to treasure him, to be captivated and marvel at his beauty and who he is. And when he returns, we will marvel all the more at his beauty. But you will not marvel at Jesus at his return if you are not marveling at him now with your words and with your life. If you don't treasure him now, you will not treasure him then. And Jesus marvels at such unbelief. So will you marvel at Jesus? Or will he marvel at you? Would you pray with me?